beauty and skincare is always a hot topic around here, and today I want to tell you about a new product line I've discovered that I think you will like, Exponent Beauty. Listeners of the show will receive 20% off their purchase. More details on that in a minute. Exponent Beauty is a skincare brand with a line of activated anti-aging serums that are clinically proven to reduce fine lines and wrinkles. The beauty of Exponent Beauty is their innovative form factor. The powders are activated with a quadruple hyaluronic acid serum in their patented precision-dosed dispenser. The packaging is gorgeous, and the dispenser itself is refillable, so it has also reduced plastic waste. Exponent Beauty's line of serums can be found in med spas and spas and dermatologists' office around the country. The line is dermatologist-recommended and clinically proven to reduce those fine lines and wrinkles, and to increase brightness and radiance, and to firm skin without irritation. No more expired or underutilized products with Exponent Beauty, just high-quality skincare with ingredients that work. Go to ExponentBeauty.com and use code TELL20 for 20% off a purchase of $100 or more. That's Exponent, E-X-P-O-N-E-N-T, Beauty, B-E-A-U-T-Y.com and use code TELL20, T-E-L-L, the numbers two zero for 20% off your purchase of $100 or more. And you have 10 things to tell. This show is about connection with each other and with ourselves. And the hope is that the things we talk about here will be fuel for better conversations and a personal awareness. This is an interactive podcast. Each episode has a prompt and a topic that I want you to take to your journal, text to your best friend, or answer on social media using the hashtag 10 things to tell you. This is a show about digging deeper and sharing our stuff. I'll go first. Well, this episode is really special, not just because I am very passionate about this topic, but also because I get questions about this all the time. And I have been meaning to make an episode or a resource or something about this for such a long time. And now here we are. It's actually happening. I am devoting a lot of time to my very favorite author of all time, Mr. Stephen King. Now, what's funny about Stephen King being my favorite author is that maybe you wouldn't expect that from a 40-something-year-old mom of two, (laughs) but he has been my favorite writer since I was in elementary school. I've told this story hundreds of times. I've mentioned it. I wrote about it in my book, but when I was in the fourth grade, I had a neighbor who lived down the street, and I played with her a lot, and her mom had a shelf in their home of a lot of mass market paperbacks, a lot of really popular, some might say pulpy books on a shelf. And my friend and I would pull them down and (laughs) look up the naughty scenes. 
fine. We were in the fourth grade. Like, you know what I mean by naughty. And we would often pull down these books that were on her mom's shelf and just read certain parts. And one of the books that was on that shelf was It by Stephen King. She actually had several Stephen King novels that I remember, but this sort of moment when everything shifted for me was the novel It. And little nine-year-old me, who was already an avid reader, I was by that time reading everything I could get my hands on, sort of the usual suspects, Judy Bloom, Beverly Cleary, but then also some darker stuff. I think I had already started reading like V.C. Andrews, Christopher Pike, some of that scary teenagery type of stuff. I was already really into that kind of thing. But anyway, I held this novel, it, in my hand and started reading some passages like in the middle, I think. This was not the beginning of the book. And I mean, I feel like my life was transformed. (laughs) I mean, the memory is not that clear. It's not like lightning struck, but I do remember it. And I knew right then that something was very different about this writing, about this storytelling, about the picture that this man was painting in the book. So I stole that book. Yes, I stole it from my friend's mom, the neighbor, and took it home and read it cover to cover and went on to read the novel It many times, like until I was in college. I read that book over and over. And truthfully, I know that elementary school year old me reading that book, I didn't understand a lot of it. Like I didn't understand most of it, but the story was so compelling It's about children for the most part. And so that was really interesting to me being a child, but knowing this was an adult book, I think I really connected to that layer of it. And so after that, even though I reread it several times, I also read as much Stephen King as my mom would buy for me. My parents did not love my Stephen King obsession. They thought that reading scary things was contributing to me being an overall fearful person, fearful child, I personally argue the other way around. I was already very fearful and very anxious and reading scary things actually alleviated some of those feelings for me. But that's like a whole other psychology topic we're not going to get into today. The main thing I'm trying to tell you is that I became a Stephen King fan really early on. And I've been reading him ever since. I have not read everything he's written because he has written so, so much, but I have read a big chunk of it. I have not seen all of the movies or TV series made from his works. In fact, I haven't seen most of them because I sort of have a general rule, not King specific, but just in general, I don't love watching screen adaptations of books that I loved. It just sort of ruins it for me. So I don't want to position myself here as a Stephen King expert by any means, because again, I haven't read every single thing, but I am a really major Stephen King fan. And I do have pretty major Stephen King opinions. And one of those opinions is that I want to convert other middle life women, which is most of our community here at 10 Things to Tell You is mostly women, I want to convert them into Stephen King readers. Because I believe both emotionally and also sort of like academically, I believe that he is such an important storyteller that we will one day be studying him the way we study the greats, the way that we study Edgar Allan Poe, 
that's another kind of scary writer, or that we study Charles Dickens, for example, who is also very wordy and also created stories that have become a really important part of our lexicon, part of our culture. There is so much about Stephen King and the characters and the images and the plot lines that he has created that people who aren't even King fans, they don't even trace it back to him because they don't know that there's just such an enormous amount of Stephen King in a lot of our culture. So this episode today, I'm going to talk to you a little bit about why I think he matters. I'm going to give just a little bit of a biography about Stephen King, just so you can sort of understand who he is, where he comes from, and how that works its way into his writing. I'm going to talk about what stands out about his books and stories. And then lastly, I'm going to share with you my personal favorite books or short stories by Stephen King, and also where I think you should start if you've never read him. And those two things are not the same. My favorites are not where you should start. So that's a whole section unto itself. But buckle up because I have a lot of words about Stephen King, why he matters, why I think you should read him. So let's start first with a little bit of the why. I already said to you a little bit about how much of his influence there is in pop culture for the last 40 years. But let me just break that down for you, like, by the numbers. (laughs) Stephen King books have sold over 350 million copies over 350 million copies. And I got that number from the internet. So that could even be outdated by now. But just be assured, hundreds of millions of copies of his books have sold around the world. So that alone is just staggering from an influence perspective. He's published over 60 novels, five nonfiction books. He's written approximately like that we know of, because I'm sure he's probably written more than this, but that we know of 200 plus short stories. These are really, really famous works and stories, including Carrie, Salem's Lot, The Shining, The Stand, Firestarter, Cujo, Christine, Pet Cemetery, It, Misery, The Green Mile, 112263, That's just a few that I'm rattling off. There's so many more, but those are, you know, the ones that might be the most famous come up into your mind, even if you've never read him. And then these have been made into iconic movies that have become such important scenes of pop culture. You might not even recognize that they're Stephen King. I'm thinking about Jack Nicholson improvising Here's Johnny in The Shining. That wasn't in the book. That was a improv moment, but it is still absolutely so iconic. Sissy Spacek drenched in blood in Carrie, a nine-year-old Drew Barrymore in Firestarter, Kathy Bates as a deranged fan in Misery, obviously the clown in It, which I have more to say about that later. And then one of my personal favorites, as far as adaptations go, this is one that I highly, highly recommend. Will Wheaton, River Phoenix, Corey Feldman, Jerry O'Connell, and Kiefer Sutherland are all in one of my favorite movies of all time, Stand By Me. This is an adaptation of Stephen King's short story, The Body. So if you're picturing these things, you can see 
just how many and how much of this is referenced or we just consider to be like culturally accepted imagery. And the fact that it all comes from one person, from one author, is really quite staggering to me. Because we're going to talk a bit more in a minute about how he writes across genres, but it feels like he has touched on so many of the most important or popular, I guess I should say, genres and themes. And I think that's one of the reasons that his work touches such a nerve. Now, I personally love his style of writing. It has changed over time. I recently read something a lot older of his and can see why a person writing over the course of 40 plus years definitely has changed and evolved writing styles. But his writing, and by this I mean like the actual sentence structure, it's not the most beautiful of all time. It sometimes is clunky or he sometimes does some experimental weird things with like parentheses and italicizing things. And like he can be a little experimental and almost even out there. He's not writing classically in the way that we think of like classic literature. And most would debate, you know, whether we would consider this literature at all. But why I think he hits such a nerve with people is again, not because he's ultra quotable. He's not like something that you would, you know, highlight a paragraph because of its beauty or because you really want to share that with someone because it's so profound. (laughs) There is some of that. But what he is really, really gifted at and why it sticks with you so much is because he writes characters and he writes scenes that feel so real. They feel exactly like people you know in diners or caves or kitchen tables, exactly how you know those things. He's very detailed, but not in a flowery way where you get like really bogged down in like how beautiful the feathers of a bird are. No, more like really detailed quirks of a character of a person, dialogue that feels really real. My husband and I listened to The Stand while we were road tripping last summer. And we actually didn't complete it because I think it's like a 40-hour audiobook or something. But we listened to a lot of it. I think we listened to like 15 hours of it. And we'd both read it before, so it wasn't new material to us. But as I was listening to The Stand, which is an incredible book, although possibly not the best choice to read during a global pandemic in that it starts with a global pandemic, but his characters are so vivid, even maybe even especially characters that you're only going to know for a few pages because they are just very random side characters or because you're getting to know them just before something really crazy happens to them. You really get to know the people in his pages and they feel familiar and interesting. And I think Stephen King's writing is so astute that you don't notice the writing. So when I'm reading something really beautiful or the writing itself is really special, I notice it. When I'm reading Stephen King, now possibly this is because I've been reading him for so long and so I'm just so used to his style. But in general, when I'm reading Stephen King, I'm not noticing the style of it. I am so engrossed in the story 
I'm thinking to myself, wow, this is like such an interesting person or what's going to happen next or whatever, that that the writing itself, the author, has all but disappeared. And that's its own type of art. I mean, when you're noticing beautiful writing, of course, that's a type of art as well. But to have all of that fall away and you be so engrossed in a story, this is a special kind of magic. And I think that this is what Stephen King does so well and is one of the reasons that I think we will study him and try to parse through and understand why one man was able to make such a commentary on the world and on some of life's biggest themes, relationships, death, fear, like the mastery that it takes to do all of that. Okay, so that's sort of my broad case for why Stephen King matters, why he has such intense name recognition, which authors often don't have. Even big books that are huge bestsellers, you might have to search your brain for that author's name. Or if it's a name that's kind of plain, if you will, you definitely might lose it. Stephen King has name recognition with everyone, whether they've read him or not. And just his name alone brings a certain connotation. Mostly scary, right? Mostly people hear his name and like shudder, like, ugh, they have a certain feeling that it's like scary or no, I could never. I mean, his name recognition is sort of a thing unto itself. That's my overall case for why he matters. Now, before I get into some of the interesting things I think that he does across his books, across decades of writing, I just want to give you a tiny bit of a biography of Stephen King. I don't know that this is always necessary with authors. I mean, obviously, we're doing a little bit of a deep dive here. So it makes sense in the context of this conversation that we're having. But in some ways, this is a different topic entirely. But in some ways, should an artist's biography, where they grew up, what their backstory is, Should it be discussed in terms of their art? I mean, maybe if you can draw a straight line to what they're writing and their own experience or, you know, what it is that they're trying to say, but maybe not. I can think of instances where the work should stand alone, separate from the person. But because, like I already mentioned, Stephen King is so well known, I do think that it makes sense to just give a little bit of background about him as a human. And by the way, you can find out, you know, a lot of biographical details about Stephen King online or in his book on writing, which is a fascinating nonfiction book. Whether you're a fan of his work or not, it is really, really interesting book about writing in general and also has a lot of his personal life. It's not quite memoir, but it has a lot of elements of that. But I mean, as you can imagine, there's like a majillion interviews and articles and Wikipedia and everything online, I found it really fascinating and surprising in such a good way that stephenking.com has, you know, about the author page, and it is really detailed. And I loved that, actually. There's things on that page that I didn't find, you know, in any of the other things that I was looking up from a biographical standpoint. And I really love that he shared that on stephenking.com. A lot of authors, you know, I'm often looking up author pages and stuff for the book episodes that we do here. And a lot of authors biographies are like just very similar to what you would see on the back flap of their book, like just a few brief lines, maybe about where they were born or grew up, maybe a few more details about where they live now, other books they've written, 
awards they've won, you know, that sort of thing. Stephen King's own author page at stephenking.com is very detailed, and I appreciated that. But okay, so he was born in Maine in 1947. And this is important because his books are very often set in Maine. He writes a ton about Maine. It's really noticeable, and I've always kind of loved that. When he was two years old, his dad went out for cigarettes and never came back, apparently. I did not get that part from his website. I have read that elsewhere. And so his mother became a single mom to him and his brother, David. And it seems like she had kind of a rough go of it. So I'm thinking of that as I'm thinking about the way that Stephen King grew up. He did go to and graduate from the University of Maine. That is also where he met his wife, Tabitha. They've been married since 1971. That feels like a really big deal to me that they've been married all this time. He references Tabitha, who is also a novelist. He references her often in interviews, in book dedications or author's notes or whatever. It's clear that she has been an enormous influence on his life and work. He had a lot of kind of odd jobs when he was young. He worked as a janitor. He worked at a laundromat. Eventually, with his BA in English, he became a teacher in high school. And all this time, he was writing. And he was mostly writing, or at least what he was publishing, was short stories that he sold to men's magazines. That was, I guess, a popular thing back then. And he was writing like mysteries or these little sort of scary short stories. Not enough to make a living, but just sort of eking by as a paid writer, which he was, a lot of those stories he then published much later in collections and short story collections. But in the spring of 1973, he sold his first novel, Doubleday Bought Carrie. It was not the first novel that he had written, but it was the first novel that was published. And his advance was $2,500. The book came out a year later in 1974. The hard copy of Carrie didn't sell that well, but they sold the paperback rights to that book for $400,000 in the early 70s. He split that fee with the publisher, so he took home $200,000 for the paperback rights of Carrie, which went on to sell millions and millions, tens of millions of copies. And that allowed him to quit his teaching job and become a writer full-time. As a side note about Carrie, he actually started that book. He wrote several pages of it, and then he just like tore it up. Well, didn't tear it up, but he tossed it in the trash can. He was like, this isn't working. And his wife, Tabitha, rescued it from the trash can, pulled it out and said, I think you have something here. And one of his hangups was he felt like he couldn't write about, you know, an adolescent girl or a teenage coming of age girl because he was a grown man. And his wife said, I'll help you with some of the perspective parts, but this there's something to this story already. So I love that, that she pulled Carrie out of the trash can and that became his first novel. And the success of it, the success of the paperback led to him being able to write full time and then, you know, everything that came after. I just love that story. Stephen and Tabitha King went on to have three children, Naomi, Joe, and Owen. When the kids were young, they moved around a lot. I'm not sure why. I haven't really been able to find a why. But they moved to Colorado for like a year, maybe less than a year. And that's where he wrote The Shining, which is, of course, set in a very remote hotel in Colorado. So it's clear that place really matters to Stephen King. Where he is living or what he's experiencing or what he's familiar with becomes a really important 
part of his stories. The settings are always, or I shouldn't say always, but the settings are often where he is, which you know, write what you know. I'm into it. Y'all know that I love to play games on my phone to unwind, and I am always looking for a new one to download. And I recently ran across Two Dots, and I want to tell you about it. Two Dots is a free-to-download, puzzle-based game that involves connecting dots through relaxing puzzles while unlocking levels and collecting prizes along the way. There are different gameplay modes to make the experience unique and exciting with every single puzzle. There are over five thousand distinct puzzles with various power-ups and special dots ready to earn as you move through the levels. The in-app music and visually stimulating interface provide a soothing experience when you just want to relax and unwind. Not only is Two Dots free to download, but it can also be played without internet connection. So playing on the go offline is a breeze. And if you don't want to play alone, you can challenge your friends on Facebook as well as connect with the larger Two Dots community for even more engagement. If you're looking for the perfect game to help you relax but also keep you engaged, download Two Dots for free on Android and iOS. With sunshine, outdoor activities, and so many fun things to do outside, it is impossible not to enjoy all of these good weather days up ahead. Of course, we all know that more sun and fun means more sweating and, yes, more odor. That's why I'm excited to tell you about Lumi. Lumi is the first of its kind in the full-body deodorant world and is seriously safe to use on any and every part of your body. It was created by an OBGYN who saw firsthand how regular body odor was being misdiagnosed and mistreated. I especially love that Lumi deodorant is baking soda and paraben-free. It is also pH-balanced for safe use on all areas of your body. You can choose from a variety of fresh scents like clean tangerine, lavender sage, and toasted coconut. Lumi's starter pack is perfect for new customers. It comes with a solid stick deodorant, cream tube deodorant, two free products of your choice, like a mini body wash or deodorant wipes, and free shipping. As a special offer for listeners, new customers get $5 off a Lumi starter pack with code U at lumideodorant.com. That equates to 40% off your starter pack when you visit Lumi, L-U-M-E, deodorant, D-E-O-D-O-R-A-N-T, Dot com and use code U, Y-O-U. So when I was growing up, and like I said, I grew up a big-time reader. Uh, my father was a big-time reader. I cared a lot about reading, and then I studied literature and philosophy in college. Like, this has always been a big part of my life. And when I was growing up, and for just a really, really long time, Stephen King was considered lowbrow or trashy or, you know, not high-minded literature. And I mean, I didn't care. I still read him and loved him. But he was really looked down upon sort of academically and just in the snobby literary scene, which I think just looks down on success, popularity, bestsellers in general, all of those things he was. And so I think about that now. And I wonder if that hasn't contributed to why Stephen King isn't talked about in a more academic way. Is it because for a long time, his books were mass market paperbacks, the type that you would find in the airport, you know, sort of relegated to the same kind of disdain that bodice ripper romance novels had, which, by the way, are also sort of having a moment of recognizing why they're valuable as well. But I will say that in the last, I don't know, 
more than a decade, but the last while that I've been paying attention, I do think that the conversation around Stephen King has changed, probably because the tone of literature and reading has changed in general. But I do think that scholars or whomever have been less quick to dismiss him. In fact, in 2003, the National Book Foundation awarded him the Medal for Distinguished Contribution to American Letters, which obviously is completely true. His distinguished contribution to American letters is not really something to argue with, but I definitely feel a difference in the way that people talk about Stephen King in the 80s and 90s and the way that they talk about him now. There's another thing I want to say here that I personally just find really interesting. Stephen King was on the very cutting edge of digital publishing. And I remember this because I was in college when this happened, but in the late 90s, when the internet was becoming, you know, more widely used, he published a serialized horror novel called The Plant, where he released a, a chapter or a section or whatever periodically and charged $1 per installment. And this at the time, this was not being done. There were no ebooks. I mean, this was like the very beginning of ebooks. And I think that this shows like a forethought that we don't see usually with this level of author. You know, the publishing industry in general is quite archaic comparatively to the times. And that Stephen King in 2000 was thinking to charge like this by chapter is like really fascinating to me. At the time, he said something about he he wanted to um, show the publishing industry, you know, not take it down because in some ways, he's dependent on the publishing industry, but I can't remember the exact quote, but sort of upend the publishing industry by going direct to consumer like this without a gatekeeper, without needing anyone else for distribution, which of course is now something that a million content creators are doing online. But that same year that he was putting out the um, serialized horror movie, it was called The Plant. He also released a novella called Riding the Bullet, which is now considered like the world's first mass market ebook that he released it that way instead of going through a publisher. So anyway, that's just a side note in the biography, but I think it's interesting. Okay, now I want to talk about what stands out about Stephen King as a writer, as a storyteller. The first thing that most people think when they think of Stephen King is horror and terrifying, you know, plot lines and just super, super scary. And while I agree with you that you know, his very most famous things are really scary, but he does not write all horror. And even some of the things that he does write that are categorized as horror, that word is way scarier than what it is. Because he has a few books that will keep you, you know, up at night, afraid of monsters under your bed, afraid to stay home alone. He definitely has a few of those. In fact, a couple of years ago, I was going to read Pet Cemetery with a friend. We were going to buddy read it again. We both read it when we were young. And Stephen King himself has said that Pet Cemetery is the scariest thing that he's ever written. We started to read it. I got, I don't know, 50 pages in or something and suddenly remembered what this book was about. I mean, I loosely remembered what it was about from my youth, but I'm a mom now. I'm definitely more sensitive than I used to be. And as I started to completely remember what was going to happen in this book, I had to put it down. Like I told my friend, I was like, I actually can't do it. Like, this is a really scary book, and I'm not in a place to read it. So for sure, for sure, 
He is known for and has created some of the scariest things of all time. Let's not even start with the clown in it that has like, you know, haunted people's dreams for years and years and years, not just reading that book, but also like the different movie versions of it. Those things are really scary. I understand. But a lot of what Stephen King writes is not that scary. Or it's not scary in the way that you're thinking. I gave a few examples of things that were really scary. But a lot of his stories are psychological or they're kind of scary themed, but again, not like that would keep you up at night. So I'm thinking there's a lot of telekinesis, telekinetic people, characters in his stories. They can move things with their mind. They can start fires in their mind. They can move things around. They have very powerful, paranormal brains. So yeah, a lot of that gets really intense. There's some really crazy scenes that happen with those type of themes, but they're not scary how you're picturing. They're not like bump in the night monsters. So if you're one of the people who have been really nervous about reading something by Stephen King, please know that a lot of what he writes about tends toward paranormal or torture, perhaps. Let's talk about misery where a deranged fan keeps an author sort of hostage and she physically hurts him. 112263, which is one of my favorites of all time period, and it's one of his newer works. That book is about time travel. Like, there's nothing scary about that book. I mean, again, it is a little intense. There's kind of like a, a thriller or a suspense element to it, but it's a time travel book. The Stand, intense, emotional. Definitely scary in the sense of this is sort of terrifying were this to happen, but not scary in the sense of the devil's going to steal you in the night and kill you dead kind of thing. The Shining, scary. It, very scary. The Body, which became the movie Stand By Me, not scary. They do find a body at the end. Spoiler alert, they were looking for it. I'm sure you've seen the movie. But that book, it's more of a novella. It's short, not scary. In the last few years, he's written some crime cop kind of dramas. Mr. Mercedes, not scary. I mean, there's like kind of an evil guy in it, definitely, but an evil person. But you'll be okay to read that. A book from a few years ago, The Institute, about children with paranormal powers. Solid read, not scary. So that's a good time to mention children with paranormal powers. There are a lot of running themes in Stephen King's work, a lot. He has a lot of things that he writes over and over again. It's not boring. It's not repetitive. I don't mean it like that. I just mean he returns to a lot of the same ideas. He writes a lot about children. Now, when I was younger, I loved this because I related to it. I felt like I was in an adult novel. As I've gotten older, it's funny to revisit some of those books. Not funny, haha, but just like, oh, I definitely feel differently about reading about children now that I'm a grown up that has children. Because often the children in his books are special in some way and that they have some sort of powers. That is also a recurring theme. And as you might have guessed, given that we're talking about Stephen King, pretty often bad things happen to children in these stories. And those are much harder for me to read at this stage of my life. But he does write a ton about kids. He also, as I already mentioned, writes a lot about Maine. 
not like the beauty of Maine, but about the people there. I've never been to Maine, but I find that to be sort of a fascinating thing in that it's always or very often in the background of his stories, like a Maine sensibility. Another thing that he does a lot is he writes music into almost every single thing I've ever read by him. I can't make this a definitive statement because I haven't read every single thing. But Stephen King is very obviously a big time music fan and he puts music into every book. He puts lyrics to music really often. He uses a lot of lyrics and these are usually songs. They're almost always songs that you've heard of, right? They're like hits of that time. And so sometimes he'll use music as a way to to frame the time. If there are people in a car listening to music and it's whatever the hit of that day was, it's giving you a setting in that way, a time period. He uses a lot, a lot of music in his books. One of the coolest things that he does, and surely there is a website or something that traces all of this. I'll have to look. But one of the really cool things that Stephen King does is that he puts Easter eggs in all of his stories. Or I don't know if Easter eggs is the exact right term here. But he will reference other novels or stories, you know, short stories, whatever, they crisscross each other. So like, it'll be very quick, but you'll find out that a neighbor or something to this main character that you're reading about will will be a character in another novel. Or, you know, in 112263, they stumble into a park where some kids are playing. And it turns out those are the kids from It. I think I got that reference right. I'm almost positive I did. But it'll be like that. He has these cross-references to so many of his stories. And so if you're an astute reader, you will notice. And it's just a little, you know, just a little smile. It doesn't usually mean anything. He's not hiding like a bunch of meaning into it. It's just little references. And it's really cool. It's kind of like, you know, those Taylor Swift sleuths. I know you know what I'm talking about. Have you seen them online? Or they're constantly decoding all the little Easter eggs that Taylor Swift drops in her music or on her Instagram post or whatever. It's kind of a fun thing like that where when you recognize just this little side mention of a character or a business or a location or something that's really a nod or a wink to something else that he's written about. It's fun. It's just fun to notice like a little surprise, like a little present. Another thing that he does is he writes tangents. Now, man, does he write a tangent? Not in his shorter books, but some of his books are quite long. I'm going to talk about length in a second. But he will write, you know, a hundred pages of a tangent. Like it's almost like a book within a book. He will like take a whole side trip, if you will. I don't mind this in a book. This happens in other books, of course, not like specific to Stephen King. And I don't mind it if it's interesting or really well done. I do you know, know people who are annoyed by that if you're a really plot-driven reader. And while Stephen King has great plots, plots that have been the basis for some of, you know, the most popular stories and movies that we have, he's really a character writer. His plots are creative. Like you think, how did you come up with this? But a lot of his stories, the plots are actually quite simple. There's not a huge big twist or there's not like this intricately woven plot point so much as they're intricately woven characters and people and relationships. So because of that, I don't always mind the tangent. But if you are like looking for a fast paced plot, and the tangent really takes you off of that and may or may not close the loop, then you might find some of his longer novels a little bit frustrating. So let me say a few words about his the length of his novels. Some of his best, most famous, most well read books 
are really, really long. Both it and the stand are over 1,100 pages. Now, of course, giving these page numbers, it depends on what version you have, etc. Like this shakes out a little bit differently, but we're talking at least over a thousand pages for both it and the stand. The shining, 600 plus pages, almost 700 pages. 112263, 900 pages. It is a brick. So that's another thing that really stands out about Stephen King. A lot of his books are not that long. And like I've already mentioned, he has some really amazing books that are really novellas. They are a lot shorter than that. They are under 300 pages. He has short stories that are in short story collections. So sometimes I hesitate when people are asking me what they should read. I feel like, ugh, the best stuff is really long. And I hate to recommend something so long to a new Stephen King reader. But please know that there's plenty out there that are not long like that. It's just that I personally believe that the best of his, for the most part, they're just going to take you a while to read. They're really, really wordy but worth it. Believe me, worth it. It's not every day that you find a product that you truly love and want to shout about from the rooftops. Well, friends, I have found something that I am genuinely excited to share with you today, and that is Born Shoes. Born Shoes are made with the best top quality leather with functional stitching and flexibility. They are lightweight, but they're also supportive. They are great for all casual occasions, extremely comfortable, and especially good for travel. The brand recently gifted me a pair of the Ithaca style sandals. Of course, they are beautiful. The footbed has extra foam for added comfort and with a slight heel for lift. I am positive that I could walk all over London in this pair of shoes, just like I did in my Born Sandals last summer. Born Shoes offers sandals, flats, boots, and heels in several styles and color choices. Take comfort in Born Shoes. Every season, they make high-quality shoes that feel as good as they look. With artistic touches, unparalleled craftsmanship, and exquisite materials, Born designs shoes to satisfy the demands of every lifestyle. Go to bornshoes.com for a 15% discount plus free ground shipping on all full-price shoes when you use my promo code TELL. That's born, B-O-R-N, shoes, S-H-O-E-S, dot com and use promo code TELL, T-E-L-L, for 15% off and free shipping, available exclusively to our listeners for a limited time. Okay, so speaking of all of that, we're going to talk about what I would recommend and my favorites because those are two different things. I'm going to start with my favorite. My favorite Stephen King book, and maybe my favorite book of all time, even though it definitely hits different in my 40s than it did when I was a teenager, it remains my favorite for a lot of different reasons, and that is It. Please know, if you're cringing hearing that, that It, the book, is not the same thing as It, the movie, or the miniseries. Now, I cannot speak to this wholly because I have never seen an It movie or miniseries, but there is just no possible way that you can pack what is happening in It, the book, over a thousand pages into a screen length feature. You just can't. Also, I've read plenty of commentary on the differences, and you really have to simplify it for the screen, obviously. When It, the book, is very detailed and very emotional. You get so attached to these kids who have come back together as adults to fight this evil, if you will, 
that's happening in their hometown that they fought first when they were children. So the book goes back and forth between their adult selves who have come back together, a reunion kind of, and then what happened when they were kids. And you're sort of following along both stories. There's hometown stuff, there's romantic relationships, there's abuse, there's a lot, a lot, a lot of fear. Because if you've never read or seen much of it, and all you know about it is the clown with the red balloon, please know that that is not the whole of that story. (laughs) I don't know where the movie takes that exactly, but this evil incarnate in the book It, it shows up as, this is not a spoiler, this is like the whole of the thing. It shows up as whatever you are most afraid of. So there is the clown, but there's other iterations of what this evil is and how it shows up. This is very clearly a metaphor, right? Or at least something we can all relate to of of our worst fears, if they were to come stand before us, it would look different for all of us, right? And so there's so many things happening in the book It that I have both sentimental attachment to and that I'll just remember for like the rest of my life. The opening scene of that book It's our main character's little brother, Georgie. He's chasing his little boat down the street and, you know, in the gutter in the rain. It is one of the scariest, most well-written, most stressful scenes I've ever read in a book. And that's the opening. And for me, that's one of the reasons that it is so special. When I first read that book, I was so scared and so freaked out, but I was also like, how did he make these words? How did he come up with this story that is this scary? It's just a, you know, huge moment for me as a lifelong reader to remember, you know, where I was or how I felt when I read that scene for the first time as a young person. There's also elements of it that I just like in a story. I love a reunion type story. Like I just always have. I love people coming back together when they've been out of touch for a long time, especially when they have this history together. I love in it the hometown factor. There is a hometown for these kids, now adults, that has had evil living underneath the city for a really long time, like since time began almost. So being from a small town myself, this idea resonates. Now, I reread it for the however many time. I read it just a few years ago, I think when I was 39, or maybe when I was 40, I got in my mind I wanted to revisit some of my favorite books of all time. And so I have reread it in the last couple of years. And you know, if I read it now, would it be my favorite book of all time? Probably not. Like most assuredly not. I still love it. But you know, sometimes with our favorite books of all time, they're tied to these other things. They're tied to me discovering Stephen King himself. They're tied to my sentimental attachment to those characters and that story. But for the most part, that book does hold up. I understand the ending better as an adult. When I was a kid, I was baffled by the ending of It, the book. And it is, remains a little baffling. But I think I understand what Stephen King is trying to do better at the end of It. And I'm not talking about the very questionable, very questionable scene at the end of It that is, you know, so questionable that it gives one pause before they recommend that book. It is a lot. It is a whole different thing. But It is still one of my favorites of all time. My other favorite Stephen King of all time, and this one I do highly recommend, is 112263. 
This book surprised me so much and it knocked my socks off. This book was published in 2011, so it's only 10 years old. It is a time travel book. It is not scary. So this is one I can highly recommend as long as you're not afraid of length. It's really long. If you're reading on a Kindle or some other kind of e-reader, not quite as daunting. I sent it as a gift one time to someone. I sent the physical paperback because I read it on Kindle and I was like, holy Moses, this book is, I mean, I don't know how you would read that. You couldn't lay in bed and read this. It's just too big at 900 pages. It is a huge book, but it is amazing. It is so creative. To me, from a plot standpoint, it's one of his very best. It is planned out in a way it feels like a lot of his other books are not. And this is a time travel book with a great love story and with American history in it. This is not a spoiler. This is what the book is about. The main character finds like a hole, like a way that he can go back in time and he can pretty much go wherever he wants to go. But he decides that if he could go back in time and change one thing in history that would then change everything that came after, what should he do? And because in this character's mind, America took a real turn after JFK was assassinated, he tries to go back to 1963, or he actually goes back to a few years before that, but to the 60s to try and stop the Kennedy assassination. So that's like the premise of the book. So time travel, suspense, super interesting characters. I was absolutely immersed. I actually, and I'll never forget this, I got a migraine while I was reading this book. Like I used to get migraines a lot more frequently than I do now. And I had a terrible migraine. I was bedridden, like couldn't lift my head off the bed while I was reading this book. And I was so obsessed with it that I read it while I had a migraine. That has never happened to me. Usually when I have a migraine, I'm like, I can't do anything but lay there with my eyes closed. That is how into this book I was. That sort of saw me through a really rough day or two. And that book is just incredible. If you can stand the length 1122 is amazing. So those are my favorites. A classic and a newish, newer work from Stephen King. But if I were telling you to start somewhere, what would I say? Well, I have a few recommendations. This is not classic Stephen King. This is not classic Stephen King. But it will dip your toe in and give you a little bit of an idea of his writing and his themes. And it's a solid book. And that's The Institute. That was published just a couple of years ago. Again, this is not classic. This is not like top 10 of all time. But I do think it is a good starter book. If you are very new to Stephen King, and you just want to get over the hump of being afraid to read him, it's a very current book. And I think that it will make you realize that he's not quite as scary as whatever it is that you're picturing or that not all of his work is that scary. Especially if you are used to reading like a lot of bestsellers or or modern books right now, I think you will be happier with a book like The Institute than you are with like a classic Stephen King, which are often dated and often have, you know, they're older books, like you sort of have to work around that. If you're new and are used to reading newer books, The Institute is a solid read to start with. But my number one recommendation to start, if you think you are ready for true Stephen King, I think you should start with his very first published novel, Carrie. Now hear me out because I know that you might be picturing the prom and the bloody 
prom queen and it feels too much for you. Let me tell you right now, I reread Carrie just in the last month because we are going to read Carrie together in my Stephen King Summer Book Club that I'm hosting over at Secret Stuff. Secret Stuff is my private podcast over on Patreon. I just launched it this month and we are launching with Stephen King Summer Book Club and we are starting with Carrie. Now, if you want to join us, you will have to go to 10thingstotellyou.com slash secret stuff. I'll put links to all of that in the show notes. If you want to jump in and read Carrie with us, we're going to have meetings, we're going to have discussions about it. But even if you're not going to do that, truly, if you're listening to this in the future, long after we have read this together in Stephen King's summer, I still think you should start with Carrie. And here is why. It's not scary in the way you think it is. Carrie White is a teenager who has telekinetic powers. She can move things with her mind. She has a religious fanatic mother who has convinced her that she's evil because of these powers. And she is bullied and sidelined and just, you know, has a lot of cruel acts that happened to her at her high school, including the very opening scene where she gets her period for the first time in the girl's locker room. And the other teenage girls are incredibly cruel to her. And it becomes sort of a galvanizing moment for Carrie's power and teenage angst and sort of all of these things that happen. So that's the setup. And yes, there's a terrible prom prank gone bad. That's probably what you're picturing when you think of Carrie. But there is not graphic gore. There is not an evil that makes you very fearful as the reader. You can read Carrie and you are reading classic, iconic Stephen King, but you won't be like traumatized after. I really don't think so. It's also short. So you're not committing to like a whole, you know, (laughs) months of your life to read some of his best work. You can get this gist of Stephen King in about 250 pages. It also is a straight narrative, even though it's told from a variety of different perspectives. There's like journalist newspaper clippings. There's these other voices that are telling you the story, but it's just a straight story. Unlike some of his other books that take jumps in time or like I already explained, really long tangents, Carrie doesn't do that. You can read Carrie and really get an idea of what Stephen King does. Now, it was his first novel. So you know, it's not the 100% best written or most mind-blowing, but it is so interesting. The characters are great. You can see a lot of the themes that he touches on. Young people, powers of the mind, religious fanaticism, hometown stuff, innocence lost, the power of young women. It's another thing that sort of comes up in his stuff. So if you're completely new to Stephen King, that is where I would start at the beginning with Carrie. You will not soon forget Carrie White after you read that book. And if you want a companion to read that book with, join in with us for Stephen King's Summer Book Club over at Secret Stuff, because we're going to read Carrie together, we're going to talk it through, and then we're going to do a watch along where we watch the movie. And I will be watching it for the first time, the original movie. There's been a few versions, but the original 1976 version with Sissy Spacek, Piper Laurie, John Travolta. We're going to watch that 
after we read it together in July. So remember, if you want to sign up for that, go to 10thingsatellyou.com slash secret stuff and learn all about Stephen King summer. Okay, this was a lot of words about my favorite author, Stephen King. I hope I made a case for him. I hope that it has intrigued you enough to pick up one of these books or maybe at the very least watch a TV or movie version of something if you never have and understand the genius of these stories and this storyteller. And if I haven't convinced you, that's okay. I appreciate you just listening to my argument to read Stephen King. I read widely. I read a lot. If you've been around for a while, you know that. I love to talk about books and reading on this show and on social media. And I get so many questions about my love of Stephen King. People just don't understand it. They don't know where to start. It seems odd that someone like me with high anxiety would choose to read someone who is known for horror. But I hope this episode explained a little bit more to you about why I love this author, why I think we'll be studying him in the years to come. Our children's children will be taking classes on him in college. And I really do believe that. So if you share a love for Stephen King, or if this episode has convinced you to give Stephen King a try, I would love it if you would let me know on social media. The show is at 10 Things to Tell You. My personal account is at Laura.Tremaine. I'm active on both all the time. And I would love to hear your thoughts about Stephen King. And I would extra love it if you would join in for Stephen King's Summer Book Club. At least then, you won't be alone in trying him out for the first time over at the Secret Stuff Patreon. As always, if you enjoyed this episode or just enjoyed this show at all, your shares to friends or on social media mean the world to us. It is the fastest way to get the word out about 10 Things to Tell You and my ongoing mission to get people to share their stuff, whether that's favorite authors of all time or the emotional things that we share to help us connect to one another. All of it is important and worthy of sharing. So thanks so much for listening. Now go share something. I'm Laura Tremaine, and you've just listened to the 10 Things to Tell You podcast. You can find the show notes and subscribe to episode emails at 10thingstotellyou.com slash podcast. And you can follow us on Facebook and Instagram at 10 Things to Tell You. Remember, this is an interactive podcast. I have 10 things to tell you, and you have 10 things to tell. So take this topic to your journal or a friend or post on social media using the hashtag 10 things to tell you. These episodes are meant to bring connection with others and ourselves and spark better conversations. Thanks for listening. Now go share something.